Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. It may be one of the biggest investment firms you have never heard of, and that is a clutch of high net worth individuals who meet together to discuss how they are deploying their assets, what strategies they're using. And we're lucky to have with us the founder and the chair of this organization, which is called Tiger 21. His name is Michael Sonnenfeld. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Uh, so this club, which is Tiger 21, oversees about $71 billion. And it, the club doesn't oversee it. It just is a clutch of individuals, right, uh, who come together, sign a confidentiality agreement to discuss uh, what they are doing, how they are doing it, and sort of consult with one another. Can you give us a sense of how much your organization has grown as an example of just the power of high net worth individuals and how it has uh, come up? Sure. First of all, we're not an investment firm. We're an organization. Uh, what we provide is the plumbing that connects today 700 individuals in five countries, 30 cities, 54 groups and 70 billion in assets. Every member meets in a group once a month, 12 people to 15 around the table. They've signed confidentiality agreements and they're there to help one another, not sell one another. So Mike, I'm guessing this group of people, they've made their money. This isn't about what's the hottest new stock to buy, what's the hottest new IPO. Maybe a little bit more about preserving their capital. So what are some of the strategies that people in this group are employing right now? Sure. So most of our members have had the liquidity event. And uh, what they're trying to do is figure out an all-weather strategy. How do they have a balanced portfolio? But it reflects also the skills with which they created their wealth. So today you have about 75% of their assets split roughly between real estate, private equity, and public equity, the largest being about 27% in real estate, income-producing real estate. And what's interesting is public equity is the smallest of them, 22 23%, because members have created their wealth in private markets and in real estate markets, so that's where they're comfortable deploying their capital to preserve it for the long term. What's been the most popular trade of late? Well, uh, I'd say the most interesting, members do a portfolio defense once a year. In their groups, they have 90 minutes to defend their portfolio. And in a recent portfolio defense, a young member was saying, you know, he's concerned about the markets. He has a lot of tech stocks and index funds. He decided to sell the index funds because his thesis is that the new durable, the new consumer durable, are the tech stocks. No matter how good or bad the economy is, people are going to buy on Amazon, they're going to talk on Facebook, they're going to use Microsoft Office products. And it was really turning upside down. For safety, he was staying in the tech stocks. Just an amazing uh, intergenerational perspective. Yep. Well, it is. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a staple for some of the uh, younger uh, folks. So how about some of the alternative investments out there? I, you know, you, you read and you hear about some of these ultra wealthy people that will put, you know, a significant part of their or, or a meaningful part of their net worth into wine or art or things like that as maybe a little bit of a hedge on other parts of the market. So we do have members who are investing in those things. But uh, for the most part, 
It's the private equity and the private ownership of real estate. And interestingly enough, if you're interested in private equity, that leads you to look at a firm like Blackstone because so much of their public value comes from the asset management fee, but the uh, promotes that occur when a, a company is sold are not baked into the price. So even if you're into private equity, you can look at a public company like Blackstone and say you can get the benefits of private equity. How concerned are the members of the Tiger 21 group about the high valuations right now and the amount of money that has flowed into private equity companies? So um, most private equity um, analysis talks about private equity funds, and you could talk about the private equity market having too much money. Our members tend towards the smaller companies where they're making direct investments, where they're rolling up their shirt sleeves. These are people who've built great businesses. Uh, our marketplace for our members is people who've created essentially multi-hundred million dollar businesses and sold them. The qualifications for Tiger, you have to have investable assets between 10 million and a billion. We exclude the all-stars of a billionaires and above. In that area, these people know how to operate. And one of the reasons they don't have a lot of public equity is they're the last to hear about a problem when you own a public stock. But when you're a director or a part owner of a small business and the management comes to you and says, I have a problem, you can actually help them and make a difference, not only to help them, but to help your own investment. So this is actually relatively new in this particular cycle since the financial crisis, the sort of acceleration in smaller investors directly lending to businesses, right? I mean, and investing. I, and investing in businesses with right. a private equity, private debt, but direct lending, direct equity infusions. And I'm just wondering, you know, how much are they bumping up against the Blackstones of the world as they try to do this? Well, clearly there's a continuum and at the larger numbers, you, you get that. But, you know, one of the things that's always interesting is when you get the best of the best, they can do large deals. In the real estate business, people always thought you had to go to the outer boroughs to make a lot of money. Turns out if you bought at the right time in the cycle, you could make a lot of money on Fifth Avenue. So when you're buying in private equity some of the great firms, you can get great returns if you're the best of the best. And some of the private equity managers are. So the small businesses see public equity as the exit. They want to build a small business and sell it to a public company. So as an example, with all the IPOs that are coming down these days, our members have been buying into the private version of that company. So when it went public, they were on the, they were on the liquidating side, not on the buying side. And uh, so we've had a lot of happy campers. <laughs> Michael, just real quickly, next uh, 20 seconds or so, how about cash? If I just sold my company and you know I got a bunch of cash and stock, I may be tempted to just stick it in a mattress. So our members have between uh, around 12% in cash. That's uh, Our members are conservative by nature, and we know that they spend 2 to 3% a year, so that's about four years of living expense. That gives them the luxury not have to liquidate public stocks in a downturn and allow them to ride through it. So uh, this notion of an all-weather portfolio is what our groups really help members grapple with when they get together once a month and they say, how are you doing it and how are you doing it? If you can pull away one idea, it can make all the difference from having yep. to give up a bad investment at the wrong time. Michael Sonnenfeld, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Michael's chairman founder, Tiger 21, with $71 billion under management. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. Uh, very interesting to see how the ultra-wealthy ultra, ultra wealthy, uh, invest their money. So, you know, 
Well, there's, it, there's, you know, they they have needs, they have uh, challenges, well, like like everybody else. And it's a huge class of people yes, and a growing one, so it's yep. important to keep track of that. Last week, FINRA proposed running a pilot program that would give traders 48 hours before having to reveal their so-called block trades to other investors. And some of the biggest investors argued that such a move would improve liquidity. To help us break down this story, we welcome Mike Terwilliger, Portfolio Manager at Resource America, covering Resource Credit Income Fund. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Give us the background on what is happening here in the bond market. Yeah, so absolutely. So first of all, thanks for having me. So to just sort of level step, so or level set. So in 2002, we passed what is known as trace. And what trace mandated was that all trades within the bond market must be posted within 15 minutes. So there's currently a movement of foot, largely driven by the monster bond shops and the monster managers to try to remove their disclosure to a 48 hour window for block trades. So that's their trades over 10 million investment grade and 5 million in high yield. And look, Ultimately, I would applaud the regulators for trying to address liquidity risk, but I think this is ultimately a misguided effort. Okay, so this comes, this change to basically delay reporting from 15 minutes to 48 hours comes after vociferous opposition to trace reporting requirements. For years, people have been saying this reduces liquidity liquidity because basically uh, people don't want to do a block trade, a big chunk of corporate bonds that they transact because they are worried they're going to move the market against them as they try to uh, slough it off into the markets. The question is, will a 48-hour delay help the market in terms of getting these trades through, or will it end up hurting the people on the other side who end up buying at a price that is too high relative to the supply dynam- demand dynamic? I, I mean, I guess I would argue pretty strenuously that we do not know if this will in fact improve market liquidity. And in this regard, I would re- applaud the idea that it's at least a one-year trial. But ultimately, I think this is a failed effort and will ultimately not work. But I think, again, the idea of will it improve liquidity, I think that's to be determined. But one thing we know it unquestionably will do is will convey a monstrous, you know, frankly, informational advantage on the big funds. Big funds are going to be able to trade big blocks. And there's going to be a 48-hour window where the rest of the marketplace is just not going to be aware of that trade. So over that 48-hour windows, investment banks and bonds and loan funds can be able to trade that with an informational advantage. Okay, so in the past, it was big Wall Street banks that acted as excuse me, brokers, and they would have the information and so they could uh, more correctly guide their clients as to the correct price and then take the differential bid-ask spread and, and, and reap a profit from it. So the fact that you say big funds, are they going to be acting in that capacity too? How? I mean, unquestionably. So by definition, again, who is going to be trading big blocks is going to be the biggest funds, like $10 million IG, again, high yield five. Those are going to be big trades by big funds. So they're going to get a huge informational advantage on the rest of the marketplace that's ultimately going to come at the cost of the mom and pop investor. They are going to have an informational disadvantage that's going to cost them. This is literally going to be boosting the bottom lines of big monster funds at the cost of the little guy. So how much are we talking about here in terms of the 
percentage of volume in the corporate bond market? Is this something that is a big, big percentage of what gets traded every day? Or are we just talking about some small block trades among the big funds? I mean, ultimately, block trades can be a big driver of liquidity, unquestionably. And I think the big firms would love to see more of that liquidity so that they can make the big trades. But right now, because of trace and because of market illiquidity, there are more one-off trades. So I think that's where they're trying to, uh, trying to move from a regulatory standpoint to see if they can get a little bit more of the block trade activity. I'm struck by why now? Why is FINRA coming out in 2019 with this when actually the sort of din of yep. people complaining about market liquidity has dropped off a cliff, at least in the corporate bond market? I would argue strenuously that unquestionably the single biggest risk in the bond and loan market is unquestionably liquidity. Obviously, we passed the Volcker rule in as a part of the after the great financial crisis after uh, as part of Dodd-Frank and what the Volcker rule has basically done is it has taken liquidity of the marketplace because investment banks cannot engage in proprietary trading so look you've seen these periods of market illiquidity over in the last couple of months I mean look the fourth quarter the bond and loan market particularly on the loan side got absolutely rocked because individual investors were withdrawing money and there weren't the investment banks on the sideline providing liquidity to have an orderly unwind look addressing liquidity risk that is a very important issue. So to answer the question, I think it's because the market is trying to think about a way to improve liquidity in a post Volcker rule era. And in this capacity, just to be very clear, because people say liquidity and it means everything under the sun, yeah. here the idea is to be able to very quickly find a correct market level so that people don't necessarily get ripped off uh, with a momentary plunge or spike in price, correct? Correct. Okay. Ultimately, it's the ability to sell an asset without a massive impact on the price. So that is the issue at hand, and the way that FINRA is proposing to remedy it is with this 48-hour uh, delay of reporting big trades. A lot of people say that I ain't going to do it. Michael Terwilliger, thank you so much for being with us. Michael Terwilliger is a portfolio manager for the Resource Credit Income Fund, uh, which belongs to the C3 Capital Management Firm, which oversees $6 billion. The healthcare sector has been beaten up of late, whether it's the Amazon threat of potentially disrupting the way that they distribute pharmaceuticals, or if it is Washington, D.C. that has their eye on reducing the cost of drugs. Johnson & Johnson shrugged all of that off and delivered better-than-expected earnings and, more importantly, better-than-expected forecast for the full year after ratcheting back their prediction just months ago, so a pretty big about-face. Joining us now to talk about that is Max Neeson, by Biotech Pharma and Healthcare Columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our Interactive Broker Studios. So, Max, uh, let's start with Johnson & Johnson and the about face. Do you buy their descriptions of what happened in two months or three months that completely changed their forecast for the full year? Um, you know, I think they're a company that's traditionally pretty cautious when it comes to guidance. So they might have you know, acted with an abundance of caution earlier in the year. And after seeing, you know, better than expected drug sales, uh, which definitely did come through in this first quarter, uh, they felt comfortable enough to, to come back and, uh, you know, raise guidance and feel a little bit more confident for the year. I guess it's sort of a question, as it is sort of with the whole sector, about the fundamentals of the business, which appear to be 
you know, doing just fine. And then uh, broader, longer term concerns about the pricing and regulatory environment, or in Johnson Johnson's case, uh, it's kind of bevy of, of legal risks. So what are they, the legal risks in particular, kind of what's the latest, what's their latest outlook that you heard on the call? So things have been on the opioid side confined largely to other companies so far, but that is a risk that sort of lurks in the background. Uh, on Talc, they had a pretty big settlement recently. The question as always is, you know, is that a one-off, one jury, one one case that went poorly, or does it read through to the the broader cases? It's still a, a lot that's going to be determined as to the liability on on both fronts. I want to switch gears a little bit now uh, to United Health because that's another aspect of the healthcare industry that's undergoing a lot of change, especially in light of potential uh, regulatory changes around Obamacare. United Health reported earnings that were better than expected, portrayed a pretty rosy backdrop for their business. Their shares, however, have been underperforming and are down. Why? I think it's a combination of a lot of things. The biggest being just that investors hate regulatory uncertainty and there's you know no business that faces kind of a bigger helping of it uh, than insurers in general and united health in particular you know the threat of of extinction no it's very remote but it's something that's in the news constantly and then you just have kind of a general political shift where even if medicare for all as envisioned by bernie sanders is a really big long shot uh the the place that the kind of the center of the Democratic Party and the rest of the the field of candidates that that's moved too to where they're supporting instead of just you know tweaks to the ACA or or making more people Medicare eligible they want kind of a full blown potentially competitive public option a lot of them so that that's scary you know even even if it uh, you, they're not going to see it for years to come and they're obviously going to fight it and have been successful in the past lobbying threats out of existence it's out there and, and it's pretty pretty terrifying well despite all that you know. Um the backstop of the uh, the uncertainty of the regulatory environment, the blocking and tackling this quarter seemed pretty decent, almost a million new subscribers. How is that relative to expectations? Uh, they're, they're doing a little bit better, but I, I will point out that the gains seem to be focused in the employer and individual market, and, and some of that came from uh, these kind of short-term plans that the Trump administration has been pushing as kind of a, a little bit of a an end around the ACA, which under some legal threat. So it's unclear how, how long that'll be a growth business for United Health and the employer market too, when you have full employment, can't really add that much enrollment that way. So, um, you know, we'll see how, if they can keep that particular part of the business up. You know, you we've all talked about how things might change in the healthcare industry, and we've talked about regulatory pressures to, uh, you know, potentially undermine uh, or, or remove Obamacare, put in something different to change up Medicare and Medicaid. But but what about the companies themselves? Are they pushing back or uh, asking for better deals with United Health, or are they pretty much happy with how things are and they're fine, right? Because that's the biggest, probably the biggest source of their revenue. So United Health is is pretty diversified. They they do have a large em, employer uh, based. You know that's a lot of their coverage. It's not. I'm not sure if it's their biggest market though, especially because United Health has a PBM and, and their whole data business too. I, I don't think there's a ton of pressure for on the employer side. There are some changes in the sense that scrutiny on the pharmacy benefit manager has uh, United Health's been 
reacting a little bit more aggressively than most of that. It's basically passing more discounts directly to patients instead of the employer. That's a big change. So they we're, we've yet to see how employers are going to react to that. Uh, but but we'll see that a little bit more of that going forward, I think. Max Neeson, thanks. Thank you so much. Max is a biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinions. He joined us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York, the beginning of earnings for the healthcare. So I'm sure we'll be speaking to Max going forward as more of these uh, the healthcare companies, the big pharma companies and the biotech companies uh, report earnings. But as Max noted, you know, certainly for the healthcare insurer companies like United, the political backdrop continues to be kind of the driver uh, for that story. And that is uh, for investors, very unpredictable. Well, if we flash back a week or so ago, all we were talking about, certainly in the fixed income world, was the Saudi Aramco deal. If we recall, there was a $12 billion bond priced. That was after about $100 billion of demand. So let's get an update on where that deal is trading. We welcome Damien Sassauer. Damien's the Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. So very highly anticipated deal, big money, big issuer. How the bonds traded? So the bonds have come off a bit. I mean, and you know, I mean, I don't know if that's entirely was entirely expected, right? Because given the order book, I mean, we had like a hundred billion, some crazy number of orders coming through. People thought it was going to be, um, you know, overbought, and so to see them trade off in the early days here is a little bit unexpected, I would say. But it's still early days, Paul. And what I mean is, this issue hit in April. And we're still only halfway through the month. And what a lot of fund managers who like to take advantage of this new issue discount, which is embedded within, you know, the Saudi Aramco deal, they would hope to crystallize that by the end of this month. So we're still two weeks away, mind you, and we're only a couple pennies off uh, off par here. But um, I wouldn't at all be surprised if we see things start to rally into month end, because as you rightly point out, some of the big fund managers who, who participated are disappointed and they get very upset with the underwriters who, uh, you know, uh, for the deal. So, yeah, we'll see how, how things shake out. I have to engage with a little bit of a conspiracy theory just for a moment here. The idea that perhaps banks that were looking to make this a very good deal for Saudi Aramco so that they could get a good position for the potential initial public offering mm. really drummed up this deal, mm -hmm. talked it up, said that there was this massive order book, which is really fuzzy and isn't sure what it means, but you, there's no way to prove it, but a lot of people want this deal, get it while it's hot, and there really wasn't that much demand. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, is I mean, that the story here? I mean, I think, I mean, look, you, look, we could look at a lot of different things. We can also look at the fact that you might have relative value players trying to play that ARB. You remember that spread that it's trading inside the sovereign. And remember, yep. Saudi Arabia, the sovereign, the dollar bonds are very liquid. So you can get the borrow to short those and maybe try to play for that. And that might be putting pressure on the bonds. There's a lot of reasons we can point to as to why the bonds may potentially be trading off here. But I do, I do, Lisa, you're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, there is a lot of people kind of pointing at the conspiracy theory that we talk this thing up to kind of, you know, kind of inflate ourselves, position for the IPO. And, uh, and look, there's still a lot of, of wrangling going on. I mean, Larry Fink was on the tape just this morning talking about, you know, glowingly about Saudi Arabia and about BlackRock's business there and how he's going to be traveling there soon. And, and so, yeah, we'll see how it all shakes loose. It seems like Saudi Arabia is out of the, the doghouse. Let's let's switch gears to Venezuela. Any 
green shoots there for that economy. He's giving me a look. <laughs> I, I, I really, I gotta say, I don't love that expression. Yeah, green Lisa shoots. does not like the green shoots. It's just such cliche. cliche. I mean, it's, it's, but yeah, and, and it's in Venezuela. Well, well, there's something interesting actually that came out last week, and a lot, a lot of people are paying attention to with Venezuela. It's the fact that J.P. Morgan has formally announced that they may be finally removing Venezuela from their bond indices. This is a big deal. And I'll tell you why it's a big deal because 99% of the emerging market universe is benchmarked to the J.P. Morgan suite of indices. Now, they have till July to or June, July to kind of announce whether or not they're going to do that and then fast forward to when they're going to do that and what that process may look like. But right now, with all the sanctions on Venezuela, Paul, Lisa, I can tell you, no bank, no custodial bank, I'm talking the Citigroups, the JP Morgans of the world, want to settle any trade that has anything to do with Venezuela whatsoever because they don't know if they'd be subject to sanctions for facilitating some trade to a U.S. person. I mean, with the OFAC rules, it's very opaque as to who's liable if a trade takes place. And it would. so I think right now it's it's all talk, but we're going to see how things progress there. I mean, we're watching that very closely. I mean, you saw some new sanctions come through from Canada today. Um, I think they announced that 43 high-ranking officials are now subject to new sanctions um, in Venezuela. Reserves are down to under $9 billion. I mean, I mean, look, it's 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 painful there. I mean, obviously on the ground, but we'll see how 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 this J.P. Morgan index inclusion discussion kind of kind of uh, comes home to roost, and 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 that's just something we're looking at there. Well, yeah, I'm looking right now at the total amount of debt that Venezuela has, and if you look at their external debt, it's more than forty-six billion dollars. But that's actually not anywhere close to the amount of debt that it actually has, because it also has a lot of debt outstanding to China and Russia. Correct. I just have to wonder who gets hit hardest if they are forced to sell Venezuela debt because it is no longer included in the index to people who will not take it, there's no one who will take it on the other side, with brokers who are not allowed to trade it because it is sanctioned. So now let's be clear. I, I actually disagree with that. I think there are a lot of buyers for this debt. I mean, I can right now on the back of a napkin create a debt sustainability analysis for Venezuela when they have a regime change that will show you that those bonds should pay par at some point in time. Because, sure, but they're sanctioned. Uh, but they're sanctioned today, which means you've got this sort of structural glitch in the system, right? So. The way OFAC works is you can sell as a U.S. person to a non-U.S. person, or at least that's my understanding of it, which means if you have some kind of offshore entity set up that allows you to purchase those bonds, I wouldn't say that U.S. persons should try to circumvent the sanctions, but if you're a European investor or an Asian investor or a Russia or a Chinese investor, you can buy those bonds right now. You're not subject to OFAC. So, you know, they may be getting in at a favorable cost, and when things go right, they're going to be sitting having acquired these bonds at pennies on the dollar and holding them out to a par. So, so I do think there is demand there. The question again is, you know, how do you sell them? How do you how do you do that in a way that's legal and binding and in keeping with OFAC rules and regulations? I just don't think anyone can answer that right now, and yeah. so that's the struggle. A glitch in the system. Really well said. Damian Sassauer, Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our interactive brokers studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.